This morning we're going to have a, a special scripture reader up on the screen this morning. It's Jennifer Herbin. Sean Levin, 55, through 12, it's Now the of the Jos was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and sent to one another as they stood in the temple. What do you think? That they were not going to the feast at all? Now the chief priests on the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they met always him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. And Lazarus was one of those reckoning with him a table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nut and anointed up with ocean sauce and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charged of the money bag he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. But the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Pretty cool, huh? Thanks, Jennifer. <laughs> She's watching. What does it what does it look like to be genuinely overcome with gratitude <clears throat> and love for someone in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord? Let me ask you that again and I'll ask it again in a couple of different ways. What does it look like to be genuinely overcome with gratitude? and love for someone in a manner pleasing to the Lord. Have you ever given serious consideration to that? If someone did something for you that was extraordinarily kind, generous, or helpful, what might you do or what ought you to do that would truly honor them and God? I thinking through that this week, and it's astounding how thoroughly ungodly nearly every example we're given today is in books and TV and movies. Recklessness, selfishness, isolation, sexual morality are the typical marks of deep love 
according to the world around us. So if we can't look there, where do we look to find a healthy example of love and gratitude? We can look to these few verses for sure. In this passage, we find a remarkable example of God funneling. This this image is really significant for me this week, and I hope you find it helpful as well. But in this passage, we find a remarkable example of God's funneling, taking all that is out there and funneling all things to a particular time, this time, a particular place and a particular person, the Lord Jesus, for his divine purposes. And within that, we find an example of one woman in particular who recognized this, at least to some degree. And in that, we see one of the more spectacular expressions of godly gratitude, love, and devotion anywhere in the Bible, anywhere in the world. With that, there are two main aspects to this passage and to the sermon. The first is the convergence of God's providence toward this city, this Passover, this time, and this this man, the Son of God. Everything, everything, all time, was coming together to bring the Son of God to his appointed hour. The second main aspect of this passage is the extravagant act of worship we see in 12.3, and its significance for Jesus' imminent sacrifice. Mary's anointing of Jesus is an example of what happens when we truly have eyes for who Jesus is. It is a counter-cultural, holy response to the Son of God and his marvelous work. And so, if it's not already clear, I hope to make it clear right now. The two big ideas of this sermon, or this passage, are that God's sovereign purposes were funneling all things to the cross, and that getting even a small glimpse of that amazing grace Even a small glimpse of that amazing grace leads to extravagant holy praise. The main takeaways for us then are to trust in God through every circumstance and praise him first and most. Let's pray. God, thank you for Jennifer and her heart for you and the many ways that uh, she has served us in her faithfulness through illness for the many ways that this church has served her in shock in her illness. Thank you that this is another example of you empowering your people to love because you first loved us, love you and love one another. We do pray that you would heal her, that you would restore her to health. We also pray that in the meantime, you would continue to fix their eyes on you, the author and perfecter of their faith. I pray that they would hear this sermon, knowing that even this is being funneled for greatest good and glory. I pray, God, that (coughs) you would preserve their trust in your great promises for them. I pray for us that we would have ears to hear. I prayed this morning that all of us, your people this morning, that, that none of us would fail to hear your word in such a way this morning that we are unmoved by it. Help us to recognize that you are sovereignly reigning at all times and in all places, over all people and all things, to accomplish your great purposes. We thank you that we get to participate in that. We thank you that ultimately you are the author. I pray that we would find rest in that and peace in that, regardless of our circumstances. And I pray that as we grow to appreciate that, that 
always pointing to the cross and the empty grave, even as now it points to the return of Jesus. I, I pray that in all of that, you would strengthen us and cause us to be filled with gratitude, filled with awe, filled with wonder, filled with hope, filled with worship, that every minute of every day we, we would recognize that the path of obedience is the path of great treasure. So fill us with faith. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. The setting of this passage, for John, it's often important, but for this passage in particular, it's exceptionally important. Try to track. I think I I say this in a way that will be helpful, but it's important that you track the the background and the context here. After raising Lazarus from the dead, which we saw earlier in John, the, the Pharisees began issuing murderous threats against Jesus. Again, we already, already saw this. For that reason, Jesus made his way to the calmer northern countryside, <clears throat> to a town called Ephraim. That area was around 12 miles away from Jerusalem, <clears throat> where they would celebrate the Passover, <clears throat> and 10 miles from Bethany, where this passage takes place. Bethany was the home, as you know, of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. That was most of chapter 11. 11.55, the first verse of our passage for this morning, tells us that as this Passover drew near, many went up from the country to Jerusalem. That is, people from all around the nation of Israel would begin to make their way toward this holy city. At that time, upwards of 150,000 people would converge each year. The aim of many of them, thank you, was to arrive in time to purify themselves, John tells us, of any ceremonial defilements they'd they'd incurred. Uh, They they would purify themselves in obedience to God's command. You can read about it in Numbers 9 and 2 Chronicles 30. One of the commentators wrote this. I thought this was helpful. The ceremonial cleansing for which many... which many came early to Jerusalem, which again John makes mention of, was required of lay people at Passover because the men had to enter the court of priests to bring their lambs to be sacrificed. And again, here's part of the key. Those requiring ritual cleansing, not everyone did, but those who did require ritual cleansing needed to undergo this seven days before the Passover. And so with word having spread concerning Lazarus, what Jesus had done, Many of the Jews who had arrived early for the cleansing, verse 56 says, were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Certainly, some were wondering because they were amazed, rightly amazed by the stories and wanted to see and maybe believe for themselves. Undoubtedly, as becomes increasingly clear in John's gospel, there were Others who simply loved controversy and wondered what their leaders would do in light of the fact that, verse 57, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Either way, the fact of the matter is that there was a great buzz in the city of Jerusalem as people had arrived early for purification and were awaiting to find out if Jesus would come and what would happen if he did. <clears throat> 12.1 tells us that Jesus was among the masses, 
descending upon Jerusalem. He did not need to go to be purified, so he was coming, but coming a bit later. Most certainly, he was coming down as a part of a larger group. It also tells us that Jesus arrived in Bethany six days before Passover. So if you do the math, you realize that would have been a Friday with Passover being the following Thursday. As we saw in chapter 11, verse 18, Bethany was around two miles from Jerusalem. That's not a great distance, but it's more than a Sabbath day's journey, which would have been around three quarters of a mile, two thirds of a mile. For that reason, most of the people traveling with Jesus, so picture this column coming down from the north, these people would travel together for safety and encouragement, and traveling down, and Bethany is just off to here, and Jerusalem is down here. Many of the people would have continued on all the way to Jerusalem when Jesus turned off two miles early into Bethany. So you got to kind of picture that. And the reason was because they were getting there on Friday, if they didn't continue on and make it all the way into Jerusalem, they couldn't finish the journey on Saturday. So that means two main things. The fact that Jesus didn't continue on means two important things, and that others did. First, it means, as we just saw, Jesus would have to stay in Bethany for another day still. He came in on Friday. He couldn't just leave at some point the next day. That was the Sabbath. Having come on Friday, it meant he needed to stay there until Sunday. And second, which matters here, but also matters as we go forward, it means that those who would have been traveling would have arrived two days before Jesus and told everyone that Jesus was indeed coming. We Remember we just read, they were all wondering. Well, this caravan would have come down and told them, yes, he is. We were with him. <clears throat> He's coming, but he won't be here until Sunday. <clears throat> That's largely what accounts for the fever pitch that had developed by the time Jesus did arrive, fueling the triumphal entry on Sunday. The main takeaway for us here is to see, and therefore increasingly trust in the awesome providence of God. Michael Zonar is our church's ministry assistant. (laughs) He's a whiz. Frequently over the past many months, I've watched him juggle tens of things at once. That's double digits, tens of things. I'm lucky if I can juggle one thing at once. He juggles tens of things at once all the time. He's able to take our ideas and make them happen by directing all kinds of people and food and copies and plans and rooms and resources to a common end. It's really impressive, and it often makes my head spin. He writes them down on a piece of paper, which is cool also. And yet, what Michael does well for a single event sometimes maybe two at the same time, or a few, at a single place among a relatively small number of people. Grace, get your head around this. God is always doing for all things and all people in perfect goodness. All things, always in perfect goodness. It is impossible to overstate the wisdom and power required even to comprehend such a thing, much less carry it out. I can barely get my head around how Michael does it. Imagine for a minute, even as much as you can, that all things, at all times, for all good, God is working. The more you think about it, at least the more I think about it as a a single track kind of guy, the more staggering that truly is. This passage helps us, Grace. It helps us to see that what's always true of all things generally is particularly true of these events 
in the life of Jesus and his ministry. God designed, again, I, I had a lot more on this that I had to cut out because the sermon got really long. But just try to get your head around this as well. God designed an entire covenant people. He designed a people. He called a people to themselves and gave them a way to think and work and function and approach him and him them. He designed an entire covenant people with a cosmic funnel directing all of them to be at one place at one time. He allowed them to be captive in Egypt and released through the Passover or through the Exodus gave them the Passover to celebrate it, to bring them annually to one place at one time to fulfill promises that he'd made over thousands of years in one man, the Christ, the Son of God. Can you even begin to fathom what it would take to accomplish that? Can you even begin to grasp the glory that that is? What's more, That which is generally true at all times and in all places and is particularly true in this passage is also true for you and me. Grace, God really is working all things together for good for those who love him. Your trials are not in vain. Whatever form they take and to whatever degree they well up, they are not arbitrary. They are never wasted according to God's design. If God can use something and did use something as tragic as the Son of God being hunted and executed for the greatest good and glory, he can use your struggling relationship. He can use your past sin. He can use your present confession of sin, your present loneliness, your busted plans, your sickness, your demotion at work, <clears throat> your failed assignments, your school bully, your green boogers, and every other challenge in your life to give you a greater glimpse into his infinite glory. In helping me process some of the hard things we've been through together over the past decade, Kyle recently reminded me of some very specific ways that we are now significantly stronger and healthier in the Lord on the other side of the trials than we were before. Similarly, not only in the hard stuff, Grace, but in your victories and joys and answered prayers, the Lord is working for highest good and glory as well. In some ways, it's easier to see that God is working in those areas, and in other ways, it's harder. But God is working in and through them all regardless of our level of consciousness. And, and maybe this is what we need to hear most, God is working all things for greatest good and glory in the mundane as well. Most of our lives are mainly mundane. Most days for most of us are spent folding laundry and watching a show and performing menial tasks and wiping noses in grocery shopping, and working an ordinary job, and changing the oil, and getting the house ready for winter, and doing homework, or some other ordinary thing. Most moments, for most of us, are spent apart from any real thought about anything cosmic or divine, about any thought other than that which is right in front of us. But a right understanding, one of the implications of this passage compels us to think differently. Grace, God has just as much goodness and glory in each of those unconscious moments as he does during the highest highs and the lowest lows. Learn this lesson. Mary understood some of this, so did Lazarus, Martha, but it's clear they didn't understand most of it yet. Learn this lesson. 
Our perception of God's working is often a poor indicator of its actual reality. He is always perfectly orchestrating all things for the greatest good of all of his people. Constantly and consciously, Grace, trust in Jesus at all times for all things. For he is working for your good in all of them. Look to God's remarkable orchestration of the events of this passage, funneling these people at this time. And remember that he is working in the exact same way. That's that's a big deal. I'm going to say it again. Look to this passage. Look to where it's going. Consider it carefully. Look to the orchestration of the events of this passage and remember that he is working in the exact same way. All the same power and wisdom and goodness and glory in your every high and low and ordinary experience. And as you do, you will find the kind of freedom and peace and courage and rest that you've never known. That leads to the second main thrust of this passage, the extravagant praise of Mary. The divinely orchestrated cosmic funnel has let, led Jesus to a reunion with Lazarus and his sisters. He was with them and rose Lazarus from the dead and then left, and now he's back. With this glimpse back into the life of this family, we find that they are still filled to overflowing with love and gratitude for Jesus' miraculous work in their lives. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, so they gave a dinner for him there. I love how verse verse 2 begins. Is it the most disproportionate earthly response ever? As I invited you to in the beginning, I invite you to think about this. What does it look like to honor God and a person who blessed you? It seems obvious to me, at least, that whatever the answer, this life at least, the response needs to be somewhat proportional to the gift. Thanks for that stick of gum yesterday. Here's a Jolly Rancher. Seems right, right? Somewhat proportional. As the gift gets bigger, generally the expression of gratitude gets bigger with it. Thanks for helping me move out of my dorm room. Here's a gift certificate for Chipotle. Seems appropriate, doesn't it? Thanks thanks for pulling my son out of the burning car. We could never repay you, but my husband is a woodworker, and he made you a -a one-of-a-kind hand-carved coffee table out of exotic wood. Something like that feels a little bit better. So when we come to this passage, we don't quite see the pattern, right? Hey, remember how you raised my brother from the dead after four days of being all dead? We thought we'd have you over for some burgers. What do you think? It'll get a bit better in verse 3, but how do you actually thank someone proportionately for a resurrection? Of course you can't. Grace, that's the heart of the gospel. That is the heart of the good news of Jesus Christ and why we need God's word to know how to respond to God's amazing grace and mercy. John continues by describing what each of the siblings were doing at this barbecue. Martha, consistent with her now millennia-old reputation, was hard at work. It says Martha served. And Lazarus seemed to be doing all right, for he was just hanging out with Jesus. Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. But Mary, Mary had something else in mind. Look at verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. 
The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Mary poured an entire pound of ointment on Jesus' feet. A pound, of course, is a shockingly large amount of perfume. But it was not merely the amount that made her act border on absurd in the eyes of those present. It was also the quality and cost. That it was made from pure nard, funny as it sounds, means that it was extracted from a plant that had to be imported from a great distance away. John's commentary on Judas's response in just a minute explains just how expensive this perfume was. Verse 5 indicates that it was worth more than what an ordinary worker would make in an entire year. Further, the fact that it, the scent filled the entire house testified to its high quality. But she wasn't done yet with just that. Not only did she pour it on Jesus' feet, but she also wiped Jesus' perfumed feet with her hair. Women wouldn't have let down their hair like this, much less used it in such an intimate way, much less used done so at a public dinner. This, too, was a remarkable, almost unprecedented act. The question, of course, is what did it mean? What was, what was Mary doing? What did, she, what did she have in mind as she did such a thing? I read a good deal about this this week. There, there's all kinds of ideas, actually. There's no common consensus overall. But things like anointing him, acknowledging, recognizing that he was king, and using this to anoint him as king was one suggestion. <coughs> Some suggested, or others suggested, that it was an astounding act of one who saw herself as the lowest servant of the greatest master. <coughs> Perhaps others implied it was a spontane- it was just spontaneous. The only thing she could think of in light of Jesus' unmatched gift. In the end, however, there's two things that I'll agree on. First, whatever else Mary might have meant, she meant it as an extravagant act of affection and devotion. And second, as we'll see in a bit, it was ultimately, though Mary didn't seem to know this at the time, an anointing of Jesus' body for his burial. Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, and is. And he would be worshipped as such. But he'd come first to die and rise from the dead. In the end, Mary's act of humble love, extravagant as it was in earthly terms, couldn't begin to touch what Jesus was about to give his own life. What looks, therefore, on the surface to be an absurdly over-the-top gesture ends up being absurdly inadequate, both for what Jesus had already done in raising Lazarus from the dead and, more significantly, what he was about to do, to bring forgiveness and reconciliation and love to the whole world. Be amazed by this grace. Be amazed by the unparalleled love of God in Jesus Christ. There is no proportionate response to this. We offer ourselves, therefore, Paul says, as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord. This is the essence of faith and Christian discipleship. We offer all that we have to gain more than we could ever imagine. It is never a balanced equation. No sacrifice that we might make or gift that we might give could possibly compare to that which Jesus has given us. What's more, God's grace is such that every sacrifice we might make, just think about this, not only that there's nothing that we can do compared to what he's done for us, but everything we do, no matter what we give, will be repaid a billionfold in the life to come, eternally. 
Mary gave everything she had, which certainly seemed nuts to those present, because she had eyes to see that Jesus is infinitely greater. Oh, that we might have her eyes, Grace Church. What would it look like in your life if you truly knew the amazingness of the grace of God? Don't be afraid to consider it. That leads us to Judas's response. Even though, as Jesus will soon confirm, what Mary did was entirely appropriate. It was right, and it was good. Even though that's true, not everyone was happy about it. In a foreshadowing of what's to come, in verse 4, it says, Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Obviously, for reasons that John makes clear, Judas's response was sinful and wrong. <clears throat> but the thing that kept coming to my mind all week as I, as I considered it, it kept coming to my mind, it kept coming to my heart, was what my response would have been in that same situation. I don't, I don't think, although who knows, I don't think stealing from Jesus and the ministry would have been my temptation. I, I hope it wouldn't have been. I don't think it would have been. But I do think I'd have been a bit too rational at that time. I do, I do think I would have thought too rationally. Instead of the poor, I probably would have been thinking about how the money would have made would have could have been used to make sure our important ministry we're we're announcing the coming of the kingdom of God would have been able to continue without the stress of not knowing where the next few days expenses would come from. I think that's where my mind would have gone. How about you? What is your first thought when you hear of someone acting in some way that only works if God is real and present? How do you respond when someone does something in obedience to Jesus that looks truly foolish? To the world. What if you had a friend who actually sold everything they had, every last possession, asset, to support a church planting effort and orphanage among an unreached people group? What would you tell them as they came to you and asked about it? Or maybe what would you say if they came and told you they'd already done it? Are you more likely to be genuinely inspired by their faith or believe them to be crazy? What comes to mind when you hear of someone? moving to a third world country with six young girls to live among the locals in the name of Jesus. How irresponsible or Jesus is worth it? How about someone who is a means of communicating the love of God always opens their home too. Their home is filled with strangers who need a meal and a relationship. That's not safe for your kids. That's crazy. What if they steal something? What if they... How about the person handing out sandwiches and blankets and gospel tracts to the homeless in the winter? Of course, not all of us are called to do all of those things all the time. But I'm afraid, Grace, I'm afraid that not only do many of us do them none of the time, but we often look down on those who do, probably as some kind of defense mechanism to keep us from having to acknowledge our own fear and faithlessness. May we learn from Mary and Judas that extravagant praise and costly obedience is right whenever we're following Jesus. Finally then, consider Jesus' response, verse 7. Jesus said, leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. 
There are three keys, I think, to these two verses. First, Jesus shut down Judas's response in two ways simultaneously. <clears throat> he shut down Judas's reasoning, both because he knew Judas's true motives and because his logic was flawed even on the surface. Jesus affirmed the rightness of Mary's action in the face of Judas's verbal protestation, and more than likely, the unspoken protests of some of the rest. In essence, this is what Jesus said. Judas, I know your real motives. Knock it off. Quit pretending to care about the poor. However, even if you weren't a thief and your concern really was for the poor, you'd still be wrong in your priorities at this hour. Second, Jesus revealed the fuller meaning of Mary's act. An alternative translation helps us to see this. This is, <clears throat> this is important. An alternative translation helps us to better understand what Jesus meant. Here, here's, here's another way to say verse 7. It's faithful to the original. Leave her alone. It was intended to be kept for the day of my preparation. In other words, Jesus was most likely revealing, I, I love this, that the perfume Mary had just poured out on him had been set aside by God for this exact purpose, perhaps through generations. <clears throat> it's possible that perfume worth this much had been passed down from family to family or, or generation to generation. Mary might have thought of it as her inheritance or insurance or something else. But Jesus reveals here that the Father had bigger and better plans, going back to the beginning. It was intended, this jar of perfume was intended by God to be kept for this day, for this reason, to prepare Jesus for the death he was about to die in love for the world. That's amazing to consider, if you will. And third, Jesus is always first, Grace. This is in line with the first point, and the reason Judas was wrong, even if he was right in caring for the poor. We can only really help the poor when we love Jesus first and most. This is because what the poor need and everyone else needs, this is because what the poor and everyone else needs most is not only physical food or physical shelter, but food that satisfies eternally and a place to belong forever. Grace, the urgency of the things of earth. You know this. You feel this. Just imagine what you can do this afternoon or Monday as the work week begins again. The urgency of the things of earth combined with the wisdom of this world will always, always conspire to keep us from having our quiet times before jumping into the day's demands. You'll feel that on some level every day. Slowing down to be still before God will never feel as urgent as crying kids or work, or school, or deadlines, or car repairs. The to-do list will always yell louder than our fighter-verse time if we let it. Grace, we should help the poor and tend to our kids and work and school and projects and duties. According to Jesus' command and example, he did all those things. Not the kids, I guess. But we should do so having fully drunk, after having fully drunk deeply from God's grace, the cup of God's grace in Jesus. Jesus is always first if we want to love others best. Here's my conclusion. <clears throat> I said at the beginning that the two big ideas of this passage are that God's sovereign purposes were funneling all people promises in history to a single place, time, and man. And that getting, if you and I can get this over the coming weeks as we continue through Passion Week and John, and if we can get even a small glimpse of that, 
it will lead to ever extravagant holy praise from us. And the main takeaway, therefore, is to trust in God through every circumstance and praise him in the highest. May we do so today and in ever-increasing measure, power of the Holy Spirit that dwells in us, having been cleansed and freed by the one for whom no praise is too extravagant. And as we do, we will become an even greater blessing to those around us.